You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's guest is a guy who probably doesn't need an introduction. His name is Jack Canfield, and he's the guy who created Chicken Soup for the Soul, which if you're living, <laughs> you've probably heard of. He wrote this book 25 years ago in 1993, and get this, there are 500 million copies of this book in print, 40 New York Times bestsellers, and he's had seven books on the New York Times list at the same time, which set a Guinness Book of, Worlds, of World Records. Uh, Jack's just a, a profound human being, a psychotherapist, an educational consultant, uh, an award-winning speaker, and a personal development and transformation leader. But what you may not know is he's also a corporate trainer and keynote speaker who's been focused on success as a big part of, of what he does where it's, it's not just personal development, it goes deeper than that, where you need to develop yourself, but the result of that can be success. I wanted to have him on Bulletproof Radio today to talk with us about, well, how he became successful and about the latest work that he's been doing, uh, which is a, a new book that he'll be talking about. That I call it new. It's only a million copies sold or something <laughs> about success. Jack, tell me about your new your new success direction, like why you wrote a book about success, because clearly you've written enough books, you probably never have to write a book again. What, what drove you to write something about that? Well, I had achieved such amazing success with 500 million books sold and trainings all around the world. I've trained in over 50 countries and uh, millions of people and I'm you know, multi, multi, multi-millionaire and I have a great family and I live in a wonderful house in Santa Barbara, California. And just, you know, my life was pretty, pretty, pretty amazing. And it started out not that way. I was a poor kid from West Virginia whose father made $8,000 a year, wow. who um, was very fortunate though. I had an aunt who had a son named Jack who was killed. And as a result of that, she kind of adopted me. I didn't live with her, but she paid for me to go to a good school and, and I ended up getting a scholarship to Harvard and, you know, all those things that turned out very, very well. But what really turned it around for me was I was in Chicago teaching in an inner city school and I wanted to make a difference and, you know, contribute to society. And this was back in the early seventies and the late sixties. And, and I met a guy named W. Clement Stone, who was a self-made multimillionaire worth about uh, $600 million in 1969 or 70. So that'd be worth a billion dollars today. And I ended up working for him in a foundation called the uh, Foundation for uh, Achievement Motivation. Like how do you motivate people to achieve more? He wanted to give back to society. He was a good friend of, um, of the guy who wrote Think and Grow Rich. Uh, Napoleon and, Hill. Napoleon Hill. So they were good buddies and they actually co-authored a book together. So that was my, in my early 20s, I was exposed to like one of the giants of this whole world. Oh, wow. And uh, I got to learn how to teach these principles. And then since then, of course, there's been much more that's come along that I've learned like NLP and EFT tapping and so many different things that are now available to us to accelerate our change of consciousness, our mindset, our skill sets and so forth. So here I am, I've you know sold millions of chicken soup to soul books, I'm living the life of Riley, and all of a sudden I thought, you know, I had to share with people all these principles I've been applying. So I sat down in bed, my son was sitting next to me with his laptop, and he was like about, I think, 11, and I'm sitting with my laptop, and what are you doing, Dad? Typing out chapters I think should be in a book. I ended up with 114 chapter titles, <laughs> all principles I'd used. I said, that's too many. So I combined some and dropped some out. And I still have a bunch of chapters I wrote. Someday it's like the lost principles. I'm going <laughs> to put them into a book. 
But I wrote that book, and uh, it's, as you mentioned, it's 50, I think we're in 27 languages at 50 countries that are really telling it. Whole cities in the Soviet Union, who the entire city government, all the school teachers had to read the book, transformed cities, transformed companies, transformed lives. But my favorite story is when I got an email from a 15-year-old who said, my mom never buys books, but she bought your book. So I wonder, why would, why would she buy a book? What's in this? And I stayed up all night reading it, and I read it the next night, because it's not a short book. And he said, before that, I was getting Fs in school. I was hanging out with the kids doing dope. I was smoking in this parking lot. I was taking drugs after school. I was basically failing out of school. After reading your book, I'm getting A's and B's. I stopped smoking dope. I'm not ditching classes. My life's really doing well. And I thought, wow, if I can reach a 15-year-old with it, we can also change governments with it. This is, this is a pretty good book. Wow. Do you think that's your best book? I think I have two best books. The The, the, the Success Principles is the, um, well, let me step back. I have, my, my life purpose statement is to inspire and empower people to live their highest vision in a context of love and joy. And the inspiration was all the chicken soup books I did. So I'll go back and just correct the introduction a, a bit. Sure. 300 books in the series have sold 500 million books. The first book we sold probably 100 million books. Oh, okay, got it. So, <laughs> <laughs> Only 100 million. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> but, uh, and so I'd say for the inspiration side, the first chicken soup book, and then for the, uh, the, the, the empowerment side, the how-to, that would be the Success Principles book, which has transformed just lots and lots of lives. It's amazing that after this level of success, I mean, you could pretty much sit in the sun in Santa Barbara, at least whenever it's sunny, which isn't as often as people might think there, and uh, and, and just chill out. But my experience of you is that you don't. You you twice a year lead a group of, of the biggest names in personal development to go off kind of without fanfare and and kind of work with each other on, on moving the ball forward. And you're still producing these books and still giving back. Why? I can't imagine not doing it. It's like asking, it's like asking a, a, a surfer, why do you keep surfing? You know? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it's like asking a golfer, why do you keep golfing? Because I love doing it. Um, if I stop loving it, I'll stop doing it. And um, you know, my life's gone through chapters. I mean, I used to, I ran a lot of seminars. Then I wrote the Chicken Soup books. I wrote that for 15 years and we sold the whole franchise to a group in New York. I came back to doing trainings. I actually wrote the, the success principle so I'd never have to talk about success again. I said, I want to just be done with it and pursue my spiritual life. And I learned you don't write a book and then not think you're going to talk about it because that's all everyone wants to talk about is your book. Um, but I literally have read over 3,000 books, taken over 600 seminars, and God knows how many YouTube videos I've watched in my life and audio programs I've listened to. But I said, if, if there could be one book that would take everything you need to know to be successful. Now, there's a lot of content knowledge you need if you're going to be a salesperson or you're going to be an entrepreneur. But if you could read one book that would give you all the psychology of success that you would need, all the basic principles and strategies you would have to use on a daily basis, could that happen in one book? And and I, I think I pulled it off. So lots more of things that are being invented all the time, but the core basic things, I, it, I tell me, if you read this book and nothing else, you'll have enough to create success in any area of your life. Where do people look for success most? And, and you have an unusual vantage point because you've done this for decades mm -hmm. and you've done this for millions of people. There's different domains of success. Like I want successful relationships. Mm -hmm. I want, you know, I, I want to lose weight or something, or I want a successful company or uh, these different domains. Right. What matters most to sort of the average person out there? Well, I think most people equate success with financial and career success and fame and fortune, that kind of thing. Some people would associate it more with impact, you know, like you're trying to change something in the world. But I look at seven areas of your life. There's there's finance, there's a professional career, there's health and fitness, there's relationships, there's fun and recreation. A lot of people are not successful at having fun in life. Uh, there's what I call personal, which would be your personal and spiritual growth and things you want to do just because you want to do them. Go to Machu Picchu, climb Mount Everest, whatever. And then lastly, contribution. And I encourage people to be working a little bit in every one of those areas so you have a well-rounded life. Um, you know, I've worked with a guy who was very, very successful, but it was miserable. And then a friend of his, and this guy was worth, you know, probably half a billion dollars. And a friend said, I'm going to Bosnia, Herzegovina. We're going to take wheelchairs for kids who have lost their legs in the war and stepped on landmines. Would you like to come with me? And he knew this guy liked him. He said, sure. 
So they went over, they landed on a tarmac, and they're handing out wheelchairs. And this one little boy, I think we said he was 11 years old, wouldn't let go of his leg after he was trying to leave to get another wheelchair for another kid. And this kid was just not letting go. And he turned around and he said, through tears and an interpreter, this young boy looked up in his eyes and said, please don't leave yet. I want to memorize your face. So when we meet again in heaven, I can thank you one more time. And he said, in that moment, the only time in my life up till then that I experienced pure joy. And I realized my purpose was about contribution. And so he came back and started the Ken Bering Wheelchair Foundation. He also builds wells because he realized giving away wheelchairs to kids in Africa, if they didn't have water, it was not useful. So he's built thousands of wells and given away, I think, something like 40,000 wheelchairs. Wow. Yeah. Just that one that one statement from mm-hmm. a child at the right time. Yeah. I'll just say this too. Yeah. I used to say success was being able to produce whatever result you wanted in any area of your life when you wanted it, as much as you wanted it. And now I say success is fulfilling your soul's purpose. So whether you're religious or spiritual or neither, you have some purpose that's built into you, which is why certain things excite you and they turn you on. You know, we, you and I are in an event here where we're recording this, where we heard from one of the top two surfers in the world. And it just had to do that. Couldn't not do that. That's where his joy came from. So his purpose was around that. Now it's expanded beyond that as he's gotten older. And so if you fulfill the purpose that you were meant to express into the world, and that can evolve, uh, then, then I think you're successful. And for somebody that might be writing poems in the little a-frame in New Hampshire for someone else that might be being an entrepreneur like yourself and you know changing the idea of what health is really about and longevity is really about. For my son, who's a hip-hop artist, it's about coming up with really creative rhymes that make a difference, that make a statement, that talk about change. Um, for another one of my sons, it's a, being a singer. It's at the Berkeley College of Music, learning to um, take it professionally. Take me back to the first time you felt real success, like maybe your first book or when you, you got your job at, as a trainer, like, like when you first realized, you know, I have more than enough money to be safe. Like, like what went through your head then? I think, well, it was an adjustment period. It was after the first Chicken Soup for the Soul book took off and we, I think I made $6 million in one year, which was way beyond. When we published that first book, I was making $140,000 a year after taxes. And that's what I had to spend as grossing around 400 for our little tiny speaking company. But um, all of a sudden, $6 million, I got about $3.5 million. I can spend $10,000 a day and not run out of money. (laughs) It's like, okay. Um, But it was weird because I grew up poor. And um, and when I was at Harvard, I was the kid on scholarship. The other kids were named Larry Rockefeller and Max Factor III and John Hopkins IV. And so for me, it was a sense of, wow, I can really go live where I want. So now it's the question is, where do I really want to live, not where do I have to live? Um, I could buy, I didn't have to make decisions like, do I want to get the blue cashmere sweater or the, the burgundy one? I'm getting both, you know? Right. And um, it was it was weird because I, it took me a while to get comfortable with my wealth and stewarding it and managing it became a new professional concern that I have to spend time on. You know, it's like, it's a responsibility. Uh, but I loved it because it allowed me to get good health care, put my kids in good schools, take vacations, but more importantly, to, to fulfill my purpose. I was able to hire staff. I was able to have the resources, the computers, the office space, the put the brochures together that brought you know a thousand people to a seminar instead of a hundred people. So I had more impact. So it's always been about making a difference for me as, but also having fun and enjoying the ride at the same time doing what I love. So you had an adjustment period, and did you have a like like a day where it just kind of all landed on you? And, and, and it just is there an experience there that you can share? The day I wrote a check to the IRS for a, it was about a little over, I think it was a half a year. We had to anyway. It was a check for a million dollars to the IRS. <laughs> and I went, I can't freaking believe I'm writing a check to someone else for a million dollars. I earned that money. Wait a second, you know. <laughs> and then I went. You are so lucky to be able to write a check to the IRS for a million dollars. I think that was the day. And then I think the other day was when I wrote my first uh, check to a charity for $100,000. It was like, what did I just do? You know, it was a kind of a weird thing. It's more than I used to make. Right, you know? right. And so you became comfortable with that and you continued pursuing success. Yes, yes. What's 
the first principle out of these you know, hundred or so that you've distilled down into? 64, 67 now, because we did a, re, a redo, uh, 10th anniversary, where we added a whole thing on social media, mm-hmm. a thing on leadership, and a thing on networking. We felt we needed to bring those three principles. Those in. are definitely part of success. Yeah. Uh, what was the very first rule that kind of came into your head when you were writing those those books in bed with your 11-year-old? The, the first chapter in my book and the first thing I ever talk about in a seminar or a speech is take 100% responsibility for your life and your results. And the idea that if you, 99%, you're always going to blame the 1% on somebody else. So give up blaming, complaining, and excuse making, which is hard for people to do. We get, we're pretty addicted to it. Um, and, but everything else follows from that because I, I teach a formula in the first uh, chapter of the book says E plus R equals O. The events of your life plus how you respond to them equal the outcomes you get. We celebrate outcomes and we complain about outcomes. Anyone goes to therapists or complaining about the outcomes. I'm depressed. I'm overweight. My kids won't talk to me. You know, I've lost my job. Those are outcomes. And so think of it as a mathematical formula. Two plus two equals four. If you're not happy with four, it means you want five or six, meaning more money, more wealth, more relational fulfillment, more happiness, whatever. Uh, you can't keep doing two if the universe is doing two. You got to change your two to a four, which means you're going to have to learn something new. It's going to be uncomfortable because all new behavior is by and large uncomfortable. Right. And, um, and I do a whole lot of work around comfort zones and things like that. But there's only three responses you have any control over. That is your thoughts, the images you hold in your head, your fantasies, your dreams, and um, and your behavior. That's what you say and do. And so these are the three things you can control. You can change. And so I go deeply into how do we change our thoughts? What are the thoughts of successful people? Just to give you an example, I was working with a Remax uh, franchise owners up in uh, New England, and it was right at the height of the recession, right around 2008, nine, whatever. And um, one guy was doing better than everyone in the room. His He was up. Everyone else was down 40. You talk to most people during a recession, they were down 30, 40, 50% in their income, including speakers I know and so forth. And he wasn't. And so I brought him up the front of the room. I said, so let's start thoughts. What do you what do you think? He said, everyone else thinks, oh, there's a recession, got to cut back, can't afford as much advertising, got to cut back on the staff. He said, my thought is, I don't care what the economy is doing, I always do better than everybody else, I do well. <laughs> that was his thought. You know. So that thought then leads to behavior, which then leads to outcomes. Um, so you have to learn how to think like successful people do. So we have to eliminate words like can't, try, wish I were able to, have to, because there are no have tos, they're all choose tos. So go into deep language analysis because we hypnotize mm-hmm. ourselves with negative thoughts. And then uh, images, you know, if you're scared, fear, you've heard this before, I'm sure everyone has these days, but fear is fantasized experiences appearing real. They're just fantasies, you're making them up. But if I imagine I'm going to lose my home, I'm going to feel bad. If I imagine I'm going to survive the recession, I'm going to feel good. Now, we can choose what most people say, well, but this is what it is. No, you choose. You can choose. Replace. You know, cancel, cancel that thought. I'm going to replace it with this thought. So daily visualization of what it is you want actually reprograms the brain to see things differently. Uh, I actually show a video in my trainings. A lot of people have seen it these days in this work, but it's a it's a video of six people, three in black shirts, three in white shirts, and they've, they've got each team, they'll call it a white team and a black team as a basketball, and they're passing it back and forth between each other of their same color. And I say, focus on the white team. Notice how many passes they pass. And I say, 33% of the people get this right. Everyone else gets it wrong, so they really focus. It's 37 seconds. In the middle of that video, a man in a gorilla suit walks across the stage, stops, pounds his chest, and walks off the stage. More than 50% of the people never see that because they're focused on the white team. So we are so focused on our current beliefs about reality, the way it is, the way we've been conditioned by our parents, the culture, whatever, that we miss all the opportunities that are always there. When you start visualizing your goals as completed, what's the vision of you? I don't know what your vision is for Bulletproof, but you know, you've got a vision. Oh yeah. And so you have, if I, you sit and visualize that for a couple of minutes every day, the reticular system in your brain opens up. It's a certain part of your brain opens up and it perceives things that most people will never see. And that you didn't see until you did that. And so we're filtering out all kinds of opportunities and resources and things like that. So visualization, the images, fear, all that, we address that. And then finally, uh, 
your, your behavior. You know, what are the behaviors of successful people? Successful people get enough sleep. Successful people worry, they don't worry about it. They take care of their energy, you know, a uh, big thing that you're into. Successful people ask for feedback. Successful people are open to being taught. Successful people, um, you know, plan. Successful people adjust their plans based on feedback. You know, so there's a lot of things that you can learn to do uh, that most people don't do. You know, only 3% of Americans have goals. Only 10% of kids in high school have ever been taught how to set a goal. So, you know, you wonder why the 1% exist. And part of it's the economic structure of our culture right. set up that way, but a lot of it is how they were educated and what they believe. Anyway, long answer to a short question. But uh, just full of gold. Let's go back to language. Yes. At, at my house, those words you just talked about, can't, try, which presupposes failure and, mm -hmm. and have to. I've taught my kids, we just don't use those, those words. Mm -hmm. And my, my son loves to say, well, you, know, you, you can't travel to the middle of the sun you know, without a spacesuit or any kind of technology. Mm -hmm. uh, so you know, there, there's one can't. And I just say, well, what if you change the laws of physics? And he's like, well, he makes a face at me. And, and the idea is if I use one of those words, I'm gonna get called on it because kids are the best at calling their parents on yeah, anything, yeah, yeah. right? Uh, but in my company, like this is in our culture, we don't use the passive voice. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't use, I, I call them the weasel words because people use them to kind of weasel out and mm -hmm. nothing really will, will stop a conversation faster than if I, I tell someone, I want you to do this. And they say, I'll try. <laughs> I was like, full stop. Right. Either you're going to do it or you're not going to do it. And it's okay if you do it and fail, but you're going to do it. Otherwise, if you tell me try, I just heard you're probably not going to do it. Right. And, but to build that into a rapidly growing organization so that we all hold each other accountable, that has been one of the biggest challenges uh, what we do, do in do our that? company, we have a, you know how kids, how some families have swear jars. If yeah. you swear, you got to put a quarter in or something right. like that and the kids lose their allowance kind of thing. So in our company, we have fish bowls in different offices. And if you say can't, if you say try, if you say have to, whatever the words are, you know, uh, maybe, you know, things like that. It's a $2 fine right on the spot. Wow. Now it's not to punish them, but it's to make them aware that there's a cost to using those words, but it makes it visible and, and you can see it. And so that's how, and I do that in my seminars too. We have one on either side of the stage and anybody can call you out. Nice. I get called out occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> and if you make an excuse, that's another $2 fine. You right. know, the reason I'm late is, no, the reason you're late is you, traffic made me late. Well, you know, you've been late eight out of the last 10 days because of the traffic. It's called leave sooner because that's what the traffic in LA does, you know. But I think the physical thing is a really good way to do that so that everyone sees it. And then you hold people accountable to it. By the way, a good retort to your son with the word can't is you say, um, is that something you really want to do? You really want to fly in a wingsuit to the middle of the sun? And they go, not really. So really, people don't say can't about things they don't really want to do. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And what's so bad about try? Try. I'll tell you where it really came home for me. I'll ask people in my audience. I'll say, put something on your table or on your lap. You can pick up the pen, whatever. Pick it up as high as you can. And they do. They put it back down. I said, pick up as high as you can. Everyone does it. Put it back down. And I said, now this time, just try to pick it up. And first of all, no one moves for a minute. And then you see a few people kind of struggling, like they're lifting a 50-pound weight, you know, with their <laughs> pen. And as soon as you say try, it assumes it might not be possible. And so now they're confused. Before, it was just pick it up. If I say to my son, try to keep your room clean because your, your grandfather's coming over, I, that assumes that it might not be possible for him to do that. If I say, keep your room clean, it's like, that's what you're going to do, you know? I mean, they may resist and all that kind of stuff. You have other ways to play with that. But the point is, as soon as I say, try to have your homework done by noon, try to have this in on time, try to get that report done, it assumes that I think it might not be something you could actually pull off. And so the, the whole brain just goes, okay, we got, we got an out. Why is there this internal resistance? Like, why does the brain always want an out? Like how hard is it to clean your room <laughs> or, you know, make your next sales call or whatever, whatever that procrastination or that resistance is? I think it's a lot of different things for different people. Um, I think for some people cleaning their room is really goes against the whole way they structure reality. You know, like some <laughs> people are, <laughs> well, if you look at like Picasso, Picasso was a really messy guy. Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain. I've seen pictures of his office. There are books piled on the floor, on the chairs, and you know, and so create some pe creative people work like that, like my daughter. Um, for some people, it's they, it's they're saying you you're not the boss of me. Kids will say that you're yeah. not the boss of me. You're not the boss of my body. So it's a it's a control issue. You can't tell me what to do. I ha 
my wife is a physical trainer and she knows all about nutrition and she'll say things like, you shouldn't eat that. And then I want to eat two of them right in front of her just to tell, just to prove you can't tell me what to do. But that comes from, I explored that once and found that was my childhood because when my dad would tell me what to do, I hated it. And that was the way I would respond to prove I'm in charge of my life. Um, And then sometimes there's things where people have been wounded, been, you know, um, you ask them to do something that in the past led to shame or to failure or to social censure. Like they spoke in front of the class and people laugh. So now you say, well, go up and tell the group what to do. And they, they panic. They can't do it. You know, I mean, they can, they, they, but all the resistance and you feel like they can't. Exactly. How do you turn that off? I mean, every entrepreneur I've ever worked with has some of these things and, and they're mostly invisible to us. Like we don't really know that's where they're doing it, but it seems to always go back to relatively small or sometimes large childhood traumas. Almost always. And this is not something that's taught in business school. They didn't teach you that at Harvard. They didn't teach me that at Warden. Right. Like it's, it's out of the universe, but we all will feel shame. I, I, I didn't do that. And we don't know that there's a reason we didn't do it. And it isn't really a logical reason. Mm-hmm. How do you go about either in your own life or when you're working with someone, making them aware that they have a pattern and that the pattern is tied to trauma? Well, the awareness that a pattern usually comes from external feedback or it can come from an internal awareness that I'm not creating the results I want. Or I'm not getting what I want done. In my seminars, the technique I use is... Um, I call it releasing blocks. Uh, I'm writing a book with Lise Janelle about it called The Heart Freedom Method because she does something similar, which she named that. So we decided to need to get out to a bigger audience than her hundred and my, you know, couple thousand, you know, live seminar people, whatever. So I asked them to close their eyes. Well, put some context on this. Almost everything that's blocking you happened between the age of three and eight. Sometimes later, could happen when you're 18, whatever. And so something happened and you made a decision. This is never going to happen again. I'm going to avoid this. Or you made a decision, I'm not worthy of love, or I'm not worthy of this, or it's not safe to talk about sex, or it's not safe to ask for what you want, or it's not safe to, you know, whatever. So I say to people, close your eyes, get in touch with something you want to achieve and manifest that you just don't seem to be able to pull off relationship, get your company to work, make a million dollars, be healthy, lose that last hundred pounds, whatever it is. Everybody has something. Then I'll say, okay, close your eyes and imagine, you know, when you think about that, what do you feel? What's the emotion? Frustration, resignation, fear, anger, whatever. And then scan your body from head to toe. Notice where in your body do you feel either a strong physical sensation or a numbness or a pain. So pain, physical sensation. So first time I ever did it, it was like a bar across my back, Mm -hmm. two by four. Then I'll ask them to describe it in great detail. You know, how wide is it? How thick is it? So we're just doing all these things to draw their attention because most of us don't pay attention to our body. It's that whole mindfulness movement we're in now. And then finally, after all these things, what color is it? Is it solid? Is it hollow? Is it wet? Is it cold and hot and all that? Inside that sensation, see if there's another feeling. Almost always is. Sometimes the same one, but it's different. Now go back to the earliest time you can remember feeling that same sensation and that same uh, feeling. Almost everyone goes back to three and eight somewhere. <laughs> yep. Then I'll say, "Where are you?" And I did this with I did this with the eight thousand Herbalife distributors in <laughs> in India. It's 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 a powerful exercise, yeah. but I did it. You can do it with a large group. Where are you? Who's there? Are you alone with people? Are you? What are you feeling there? Is there something happening you don't want, which is often the case? They're shaming you, sending to your room, punishing you, accusing you of something you didn't do. Or is there something you're wanting you're not getting? Attention, love, security, protection, you know, whatever it might be. And then what decision did you make at that point in life that might be still limiting you? What belief did you take on? And then I have you as an adult go back and talk to that inner child with all the wisdom you have now and, and tell him, hey, maybe it wasn't personal. Your dad was just pissed off that day, just lost his job. You know, your mother didn't know any better, you know, blah, 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 blah. And maybe it's something you needed in your development to give you the compassion to do the work you do today. Because a lot of people that are therapists and trainers do it because of something that happened to them as a child that they don't want ever anyone to ever experience again. And now they know what it feels like. And then finally, you go into the future, become your enlightened self. Some people say, you know, you can access a spiritual teacher. Either one works. You're accessing the same wisdom. What advice would you have for the adult sitting in the chair who started this whole thing? And by the end of that, 98% of the people have released it. It's gone. It doesn't come back. doesn't affect them anymore. And um, yeah, I write it down 
things like that afterwards. But basically, it's very, very powerful. It, that is uh, very similar to the stuff we do under neurofeedback at 40 Years of Zen, yeah. uh, where you can sort of see if you're wiggling around, like, like whether you're still resisting it. Right. But I, no one taught me that stuff. When, when I was about 30, I did a, a personal development program. And I actually went back to when I was born, a little before three. And I it was kind of scary because I didn't know that that was possible. And I had made this decision because I was born with an umbilical cord wrapped around my neck. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I, I came out, they put me somewhere else as just a very young baby, right? And it was pure emotion, no no real thinking about right. it. But I made a decision, like, if I'm going to be alone, then I'll be alone. And I literally, like, lived my life where I just wouldn't make connections with people for 30 years because of some decision I made when I barely had a brain, right? Right. Uh, and I went back and I successfully, you know, recontexted that and, and let go of that. Uh, and since then, I've militantly gone through anytime I can find any of that stuff. And I started teaching my kids, like my 10-year-old daughter, I'm like, well, why don't you draw that feeling? Like, where is it? And so, you know, she'll draw a picture of, you know, a red ball and oh, very things cool. like that to try and, and call this out. But I put myself into my, you know, 30, 35-year-old entrepreneurial self before I'd, I'd gone down the path that I've been down. And I think, okay, I can hear this interview and I can say, this all sounds really good. Number one, I don't believe it because I'm going to have my own internal resistance because it just can't be that simple. And because I'm smart mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm smart enough to know if my body was doing something that's stupid. Do you recommend that people work with, you know, a, a trainer, a coach, a therapist, a, a friend? Like, like usually it helps to have someone yeah. guiding you through this. What's the most effective way you've found for people to really just like get rid of this stuff? Well, there are people that can listen to a CD at home and go through a process yeah. like this, which they get it. But I find we're, we're very tricky at tricking ourselves. The ego and is trying to protect us. I mean, you know, the ego is not at all, all a bad thing. It, you know, it can Useful. get in our way. It has its uses and uh, it wants us to survive. But it's like you're walking around in, I always use the metaphor, if you saw someone walking down the street with their scuba gear on and their big fins and their <laughs> tanks and all that stuff, you'd say, dude, you're not in the ocean anymore. You can take that off. Right. But we don't see it on ourselves, you know, and so we trick ourselves. So I think having a therapist, a coach, a counselor, a guide, a trainer, you know, whatever that's um, skilled in these techniques is the best way to go. And there's so many new techniques like EFT tapping. You, yeah. you know, you can release beliefs through tapping. You can release trauma through tapping, pain through tapping. And by the way, I just interviewed at this same place in Hawaii. I interviewed uh, Dawson Church about tapping. Yes. Um, so people listening can find that episode. It'll come out before or after yeah. our episode. But Dawson's a good friend of mine. I, I wrote a book called The 30-Day Sobriety Solution in which Dawson helped me write a whole chapter on how to tap away the craving for alcohol. So it's it's pretty amazing stuff. Now, this is another one of those things that triggers skepticism mm -hmm. across broad numbers of people. Like, really? Like, here I am. You know, I'm a successful human being. You know, I've managed to have a family and a career. And now you're going to tell me I'm supposed to you know, tap between my eyes three times and tap over here. Uh, and, and so even with the hundred studies that Dawson talks about and mm -hmm. things like that, there's so much like societal resistance to these things that seem to work, even if we don't necessarily know all the reasons they work, but mm -hmm. like if you do A, B usually happens, therefore doing A might be a good idea. Where's the resistance to these relatively rapid and relatively risk-free things? Where do you think it comes from? Well, there, there's, there's the research of Carolyn Dweck about open mindset and fixed mindset mm -hmm. and how certain people really believe that they're not fixable that, or that being fixed is dangerous. You know, like uh -huh. I might all of a sudden not love my wife or I might not want to be a father anymore or I might want to quit my job and go grow worms in Timbuktu or something. Um, there's that fear. And I think there's another fear that if I engage in some of this, stuff might come up that's painful that I don't want to feel. You know, a lot of the reasons we shut down these emotions and turn them into tension or pain in our body is because they were painful. And as a child, perhaps you didn't feel you could handle that pain, you didn't have the capacity to let it move through your body. You did, but you didn't know you, you did. And so I used to be a psychotherapist many, many years ago. I got really tired of it one-on-one -on -one in a room. I like to be out in the world with big groups. But I would hear people say things like, well, if I stop crying, if I start crying, I'll never stop. If I allow myself to get angry, I'll explode. And they really thought like they'd be peeling parts of their body off the wall or they'd hurt somebody or they'd hurt themselves or it's just too painful. And I think there's some of that in there on a subconscious level that people don't know that all you have to do with an emotion is experience it and it will pass through you. Um, 
So there's that piece of it, I think, too. And then I think a lot of it is people don't want to be seen as silly. They don't want to be conned. They don't want to be seen as stupid. You'll see people sitting in the airport now tapping to get rid of their fear <laughs> yeah. of flying. And you look a little dumb, you know, to do it. Uh, but I've had people, including some people at this conference, who, who were um, sexually abused as children, who had done years of psychoanalysis and nothing changed it. And then one of them took a seminar with me, and we did about eight minutes of tapping, and it was gone. The PTSD was gone. The fear of that happening was gone. The, the sexual holdback was gone. And I, I was working with one guy in Bali and his wife. He had had a traumatic brain injury. He was in one of those motorized wheelchairs. I mean, the real kind where you can just hardly blow through a straw to make something happen. Right. And his wife finally admitted that she married this dynamic young guy. He was a big TV producer. He was cool. And now he's like this baby she has to take care of. And she was just like feeling resentful and angry about it. And, but she was a saint also. We started tapping. She's going to tap on this feeling, just get rid of this sense of resenting her husband. We didn't even complete a complete tapping segment of the nine points. She only got to three of them and she started laughing and it was gone. Wow. I mean, that's how profound it is. And so would I teach this to like, you know, 600 or a thousand people, I'll bring someone up on stage who I say, who's has a fear of singing in front of a group, bring them up. We'll do tapping within about six minutes. They're singing some song in front of the group. So everyone goes, Whoa, now we'll have all 600 people tap simultaneously on some issue of their own. And you know, 99% of them, it goes down to a level of intensity of one or zero. And so then they go, Oh, okay, I get it. But you kind of have to see that if you're a skeptic to believe it. I, I'm looking at ways of of bringing lots of these, I'll, I'll call that a technology. You know, it's a way of accessing a state of the human body that we didn't really know very much about. Mm -hmm. And there's things like EMDR where you move your eyes and yeah. and I've, I've seen just profound changes from almost any time you're, you're applying these things. And I want more people to be open to the idea of trying ones, especially ones that don't have side effects like, mm -hmm. like the worst that'll happen is you'll have wasted eight minutes of your life tapping exactly right so so like there isn't a lot to be afraid of and when i look at what happens online it seems like there's a small just really vocal i like to call them science trolls who have this mantra that says that can't happen therefore it didn't <laughs> right where does that psychology come from I, I honestly don't know the reality of that one. I know that there's a lot of scientists who are very skeptical of anything that is not evidence-based, that it's been clinically tested with all kinds of double-blind studies and, you know, on and on. And, and, and But, you know, here's the deal. Dawson Church, as we mentioned, has a ton of research on all this stuff. I and mean, there's yeah. a ton of research on all of this stuff now. Right. You know, Heart Math Institute and so forth. I think an utter thing that occurs for people is for years I've been against this, and if I admit it works, then I was wrong. I don't want to admit I've been wrong up until now. There are actually cases of people in history whose scientific uh, theories were proven wrong by some new scientist who actually committed suicide. Wow. Because they couldn't cope with the fact they'd been wrong. And so there's a lot of, a lot of um, energy about not being wrong. I never took the S training, but I know that was one of their big issues was the fear of being wrong, you know, and addressing that. Like, can you be open to not knowing? Can you be open to having been wrong? You know, it doesn't mean you're bad. I always tell parents, I used to do parenting workshops. I say, I'm going to share a lot of things with you today about how to be a better parent. And you're going to go, oh my God, I've been doing that to my kid. That's kind of screwing them up. Now you could beat yourself up and say, look what I've done. It was so bad to my child. Or you can celebrate that you no longer have to do it. And so I really invite you, you didn't do anything wrong. You did the best you knew how to do with the awareness tools and skills you had at the time. But a lot of people have been trained by scientific parents, parents who are lawyers that love to argue about things and be right. And they're really invested in being right. And so to give up the position that you held for many years is very challenging for that mindset. Oh, that's that's useful because I always ask, kind of scratch my head when I come across people like that. It's like, well, if it didn't happen, then like you're on the wrong social media page by now. <laughs> I, 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 there's no conversation to be had with you. But uh, if, yeah. if it's how how could that possibly work, then there's a good conversation. And, well, I, I have friends, uh, you know, some of them who literally in their seminars will say to people, you know, well, are you open to knowing that that's not the way it is? And they go, no. And he says, well, you're in the wrong seminar. <laughs> right. <laughs> you can leave now. I full refund, no questions asked. You're yeah. going to be miserable for the next three days otherwise. <laughs> <laughs>
you talk about something else in, in a lot of your work and uh, pretty much many of the things that you write. And you talk about being born with a purpose and how you believe that people are born with a purpose. Mm -hmm. And I've had a lot of people, especially younger entrepreneurs, I've had a chance to talk with saying, well, I'm not sure I know what my purpose is. Mm -hmm. And number one, how would someone who who's, you know, has lots of energy, wants to do this, but but maybe just doesn't know how to find their purpose. Is there a path or a process or one of your books they should read? Like, like what's the recipe for knowing your purpose if you're not sure or you just don't know? Well, let me give a large context answer to, before I enter, ask, answer that really specifically. And Because the second chapter in my book, The Success Principles, is get clear why you're here, which <laughs> yeah. is all about purpose. <laughs> so that when you set goals, the goals can be aligned with your purpose. Yeah. They're much, and life's just easier. But a lot of people get stuck there. So what I've come to is to be able to say to people, look, you can create a very successful life and never know your purpose. You can choose a purpose. You can create a purpose. You can lean into things that feel joyful for you and pursue that. A purpose may evolve out of that. So don't stop because you didn't get your purpose clear, thinking you can't do the rest of all this good stuff. However, the three ways I know to best get in touch with your purpose, number one is to do a joy review of your life. What brings you the greatest joy? You know, in my life, I was always a leader, a teacher in the, in the Cub, Boy, Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts. I was a troop leader, you know, in the, in the Christian fellowship I was in as a kid, you know, I've evolved into a much more macro view of religion and, and spirituality these days. But I was the head of my, my youth group in, in, in church. And I was a, a, a captain in my military school that I went to and my aunt sent me to, you know, and then I went to Harvard and I was a vice president of a fraternity. I would have been president, but they didn't want to send a guy to the national conference who had a beard. <laughs> I, had a, I, had a beard so I was vice president, but then I became a high school teacher. Then I was a teacher trainer. Now I'm a speaker and a trainer, you know? So it's like, I look and I'm happy when I'm doing that, you know? My wife says, why don't you retire and do what? Play golf? I wouldn't be happy, you know? So this is what I love to do. So um, look back over your life. There's a story in my book about a woman named Julie Lapley, and now Carrier, because she married him, a guy. But when she was in, a, in college, everyone said, you should be a veterinarian because you love animals. And so she went off to Ohio State to become a veterinarian because she did love animals. But then it wasn't about petting animals and feeding them and walking. It was about bio, bio, biology and biochemistry and anatomy and all. And she was miserable. So one day she, it was raining out. She said, I'm miserable. When was I happy? And again, for her, it was always when she was in leadership position. She was a school president. She was a leader in her sorority and all this. So she went to the university and she said, can I get a degree in leadership? And they said, we don't have a degree in leadership, which is kind of silly when you think about it. And she said, well, can I take journalism courses, psychology courses, speech courses for influence and all that? And, and they said, yeah. So she developed an independent study leadership program, which then Ohio State kind of adopted and created a program. At 24 years old, she was teaching leadership at the Pentagon to military officers. And now she has a, a leadership academy for young girls and women um, because she figured out when was I happy? Uh, I had a doctor who uh, was miserable and he realized he was part of a private practice and they were all trying to maximize the income and charge people an arm and leg. He was happiest when he was doing pro bono work because he would love the effect it had on the people when they were people that couldn't afford a heart surgery and he would, the family would come in and say, save my dad's life, you know? So he totally changed the nature of his practice and now he was happy again. The second thing you can do, there's a paper and pencil test, if you will, in my book. Uh, you ask yourself, what are two qualities that you... Your, if your friends were describing you, what would they say your two best qualities were? Well, mine would be love and enjoy. Two qualities you love expressing, and other people would tell you. Then two ways you love expressing it. Well, for me, it's inspiring people with stories, empowering people with tools. And then if you were to describe the world as perfect according to you, what would it look like? Well, to me, it's everyone would be living their highest vision. For someone else, it might be everyone's living an ecologically sustainable lifestyle. For someone else, it would be everyone's taking 100% responsibility for life. Now... That vision of how the world would be if it was perfect according to you, you're supposed to use your two qualities and express them in the way you love expressing them to create and bring about that kind of world. Now, you don't have to be in the Peace Corps to bring around a peaceful world or to help people in third world countries. You know, your, your qualities could be humor, but I know a bus driver who just tells jokes to the people on his bus when they get on in the morning and everyone gets off his bus feeling well. A doctor, um, the 
what was his name, the Patch Adams, who used to use humor. And he his his major quality was humor, but he was doing it through comedy. So um, that's another way. And then the third way is a guided visualization, where you go inside and the guardian angel comes and you get a gift that is a symbolizes your your um, top qualities and that it's your life purpose. So I always get a heart and um and and usually a sword so empowerment and love you know um so it's for me it's always been congruent are guardian angels real i don't think there's things with wings flying around in the sky but i do believe there are energetic forces that are um on your side and um i've done a lot of meditation a lot of visualizations and we see these projected images in our iconic you know, images that we have in our subconscious mind just like a you know a if I say, what's a symbol for wisdom? Everyone goes, well, now, you know, Merlin's cap. So we know at a deep level what those are. And, um, but I can ask, I ask for guidance. I ask for, I've, I've actually seen psychics tell me they see people, like energies yeah. around me that yeah, are- people have told me that too, yeah. Yeah. And um, whenever I ask questions like that, I get answers. If I use them, my life works better. Um, so I do believe there are uh, energies um, which we would call beings that are on our side that are there to help us. And when we did Chicken Soup for the Soul, we did a couple of Chicken Soup for the Christian Soul books, the Christian Mother, Christian Soul. Um, that we did one for angels, and um, the stories are unreal. This one story was this guy was um, his car broke down, bad neighborhood. He's walking across a bridge. It's over a very narrow river in this ghetto type area, and all of a sudden he sees six guys walking toward him with uh, pipes and tire chains and things like that. And he went, oh, I won't say what he said on the air. <laughs> and, and, but I'm, I'm screwed. And all of a sudden, they just stopped, turned around and ran, ran. And he, he looks around like there's nothing behind him. He figured, what the hell just happened? Well, subsequently, I don't know how, but at some community meeting, he saw one of these guys that came up to him and said, you know, uh, you look like the guy on the bridge we were going to beat up. And he says, yeah. He says, what happened? You guys just turned around. He said, all of a sudden, there was some guy standing behind you. It looked like he was 10 foot tall. And it just was clear we were not going to mess with you. Wow. You know, and another story where this kid uh, was, uh, he actually crashed through a plate glass, you know, sliding glass door. Mm -hmm. And there was a piece up the top that was like a guillotine type piece of glass that didn't fall. And um, he was stunned he looked up and he then crawled out and then the glass fell wow and his dad was in the yard running toward him and he, he saw it and he said oh my god what happened he said dad there was this angel was holding up the piece of glass and as soon as i got out he dropped it you know and i could tell you story after story after story like that so you hear enough of those stories after a while you go just from the anecdotal evidence that there are it's become really apparent to me, I mean, traveling to Tibet and studying with masters and, and talking with shamans and experiencing my own things. Mm -hmm. There's something interesting going on that's hard to see and characterize. And, and I don't know that there's a name for it, but my experience of success has been that people who are unwilling to pay any attention or at least acknowledge that I can ask something, whether it's all in my head, it's all in my energy or it's something else and you mm -hmm. give it a name. If you're unwilling to do that, it seems to make you less successful and less happy. I think it's true. I think it's true. You know, I, here's the deal. Title for Chicken Soup for the Soul, which is now a multi-million dollar brand, okay? I mean, it's worth a lot of money. We sold our company for, for multiple tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars. Yeah. And that title, I said, I need a title for the book. Mark and I, my co-author, decided we would meditate and ask the universe, God, source energy, whatever you want to call it, infinite intelligence for a title. Monday, nothing happened. Tuesday, we said, so I'd sit for an hour each day, just in expectation. Wednesday, this hand comes out and a big chalkboard appears and his hand writes chicken soup on the chalkboard. And then I said to the hand, what, what the heck does chicken soup have to do with my book? And, and then the voice, I assumed it was God or an angel, said, when you were sick, your grandmother gave you chicken soup. I said, but this is not a book for chick, sick people. He said, I, and he said, we know, or I know, I can't remember what it was. And then it says, um, but people's spirits are sick. It was, a, it was right in the middle of the 1993 recession, 1992 right. or 91, whatever that was. And so I went chicken soup for the spirit, chicken soup for the soul. Then I got goosebumps. 
Yeah. And then I called Mark and he got goosebumps. Told my wife, she got goosebumps. Told her agent, he got goosebumps. Went to New York, met with 21 publishers in three days. Nobody got goosebumps. <laughs> wow. So we got rejected by 144 publishers before the book got sold. 144? 144. Wow. And I think there's some Bible quote, you turn your cheek 12 times 12 or something. You know, it's like, when it's being slapped. But the point is, there was a higher power that spoke to me, whether it was an angel, God, my own higher unconscious. I mean, we can debate that forever. Yeah, you'll never know. But I, I hold that it's, uh, and, and there's so many people that are so, sit so much higher in consciousness than I do, who would say there are disembodied beings who are yeah. helping us. Some of the most, the, the people with, I'll just call them the creepiest powers, uh, and it, not in a bad way, but just like, mm -hmm. how could you possibly know the things you know that, that no one told you? And, mm -hmm. and it, like, I, I'm not one of those, but when I meet people like that, it's clear they're not faking it. Yeah. And they're unusual people. Uh, so they say similar things, right? Mm -hmm. And the same thing when I wrote my very first book, uh, The Better Baby Book, I, I spent three hours in like a really altered state during during uh, neurofeedback. And I kind of came out of this with you know, one eye bigger than the other. And I picked up my pencil and I wrote the entire uh, outline for the book, just out of wherever the heck that came from. Mm -hmm. And a week later, you know, Gary Tobbs introduced me to his agent. And then I had an agent and, and like this, I don't think it was random. <laughs> no, I don't think it was random either for us. I mean, we got chicken soup for the soul television show with uh, the guy that was the producer of America's funniest home videos. It all just, it all just fell into place. You know, I look back on my life. I, I think I've efforted way too much, meaning that there were always synchronous experiences being set up for me that I could have just walked into with a lot less effort if I'd have just been open to it. You know, everything right now, there's opportunities that are coming to me that I had guidance 20 years ago that this would be happening. And just like, just wait, it'll happen. It's coming. Wow. It's, it's, it's very bizarre. It's very bizarre stuff. Although I'm, I mean, you know, the quote someone said it the other day, you know, Einstein said, you have to either believe everything's a miracle or nothing's a miracle. It's your choice. <laughs> I like to believe everything's a miracle. I, I appreciate you being willing to talk about this stuff. I've, I've had you know, dinner conversations with extraordinarily wealthy, phenomenally successful people. More of them are on that wavelength than not. I agree with you. I have the same experience. Yeah, but, they but they're afraid to it. talk about it. <laughs> right. Well, they're afraid, you know, we talked this morning in a small subgroup at our conference here about UFOs. And what has been true up until just recently is if you talked about seeing a UFO and you were a pilot, you would land your plane and they would be people in suits would meet you and take you into an interrogation room. And basically, you know, they would question your ability to continue flying in the future. Same thing in the military. You, you they canceled your vote. You did, you know, you'd literally, it, yeah. it, it could ruin your military career. Yeah, that didn't happen because it can't. Therefore, you're crazy. It's exactly. That same algorithm. Exactly. And yet, the C, I think a lot of CEOs are afraid that if they come out and talk about, even if they meditate, if they see spiritual things, if they get inner guidance. I mean, I think it was. Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton, um, Gene Houston went down and worked with them and had Hillary go back and basically get guidance from Eleanor Roosevelt. And that got out to the press. And Gene Houston lost all of her government contracts. Um, she, she lost her college professorships where she was a guest professor for a while. Now it's come back. She's doing well again, but I think 10 years of her life. Because and, and and Hillary had to backpedal and kind of pretend it didn't happen because it, it was making her look like an idiot, and yet that's one of the reasons the Clintons were so successful is, is what they did. Um, so it's it's um, I, I hear that a lot from CEOs that they have and and how many of them have psychics that they 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 consult? So many of them. I know so many and yeah. like they'll never talk about it unless they're right. friends. I, I I did not know that and right. it blows me away. Well, they don't want their board of directors voting them <laughs> off the CEO position. You know, it's it's funny, but we just had a psychic at our house. Her name's Michelle. She's from Canada. She's the number one psychic up there. She finds dead bodies in the forest, that kind of thing. She, yep. The police departments all use her. And I'm teaching. She'd written a book, and I'm doing a seminar on how to be a bestseller. And she's in my living room in my house. And Inga, who hates having people in her house, that's my wife, number one, and also doesn't like all these strangers that are authors and things, you know, anyway. So she kind of avoids the group. She's walking behind the, the door to get up to her bedroom. And this woman goes, someone, someone Norwegian just walked by. Is there a Norwegian that lives here? <laughs> I went, well, my wife's Inga, Norwegian descent. I've got a message for her. 
So then we have these meetings with her and do these sessions, and she tells her all these things that no one could know yeah. except her. And then we had another guy we just went to who channels dead people. And Inga's father committed suicide when she was eight. And all of a sudden, this guy, Jonathan, I think his name was, starts going, oh, yeah, your dad wants you to know he's really sad that when he committed suicide when he was eight, and he wants you to know that he's realized that it was a mistake, and he's sorry he hurt you. And he's going on and on and on and on and on and on. And, on. and it was like he did that for 10 people in the audience. Who who here at number 47 means something? Woman raises her hand. That was my nephew who died's football uh, jersey number. Well, he wants you to know, and and all the stuff that only yeah. could be coming through, you know. And you sit there and you go, okay, you have to believe it because it just happened. <laughs> <laughs> so here's here's my 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 thought. There are people with gifts, yeah, who are shamanistic, psychics, healers, whatever. And if you go into all your indigenous cultures, they are absolutely um, honored respected and utilized. And in our culture, these people, we marginalize them. We call them weird. We call them witches. We stoned them to death in New England and so forth because they you know, didn't, went against the structured Christian church thing going on there, puritanical stuff. And so we've lost, we've lost so much wisdom, so much guidance that could make our life so much easier if we just allowed it to be. But we don't. But it's changing. It's changing. We see more and more people accepting it. The fact that that very successful people are willing to step out on a limb and say, "Yeah, I, I do this stuff," mm -hmm. it, it does change things. And yeah. and I go back 15 years ago in Silicon Valley, no one would admit to meditating, and I'm like, well, "I'm going to put meditation and smart drugs in my LinkedIn profile." Yeah. And it was like one in ten people after meeting us all, they'd be like, "Hey, I, I meditate too," and it, it's right. like it's sort of a little secret. And I, I'm actually so encouraged that over the last relatively short period of time, yeah. now it's like the CEOs who don't meditate are like the uncool kids. Right. Right. Like that's a really rapid societal shift. Well, this whole mindfulness 2.0 thing yeah. started in Silicon Valley. Yeah. You know, where all these people are, a lot of money are starting to go, okay, I want, I want this whole life that's possible to me. I'm going to start talking about it. And now we've got all these conferences going on that literally sourced out of the Silicon Valley meditators. Yeah, I'm certainly the whole biohacking movement yep. thing is out of that way of yep. thinking, and I, I love it. Well, I have one more question for you uh, for this episode, Jack. And it's, if someone came to you tomorrow and they said, look, I want to perform better at everything I do as a human being, mm -hmm. three most important pieces of advice, what would you give them? I would say you really have to um, make it, that would, it, would, it would have to be your, your number one commitment. You would have to seek out the people that know how to do that. In other words, um, I love that phrase, you know, there's that 10,000 hour idea to become a master it takes 10,000 hours, but there's now research that says you can get there faster with a master. <laughs> so <laughs> it's true. So I would seek out the people that are actually doing that, you know, whatever it is you want to get better at. I would make it a daily habit to spend time working on that. Um, whatever the things you want to do. And it's kind of a vague question because it could be anything that you want to get better at. But generally the idea is that um, it, it, there's research now that takes about 66 days to change a habit. You can actually change a thought form much quicker now because of things like tapping and, and so forth. Um, some things take some research about 122 days to change. So it's a daily commitment of time that you keep score on and you have an accountability partner for. Big problem is most people are, and a lot of your listeners are going to be solo entrepreneurs or they're ahead of their own little entrepreneurial thing they put together. They don't report to anyone. No one's going to fire them if they didn't do the thing they're supposed to do. Right. We tend to put off the uncomfortable things last. So do it first thing in the day really study hard, go find out who the teachers are that can teach you, you know, the, the Tim Ferriss approach to life, which I, th I really admire him uh, and what he's done. And I would say, um, visualize yourself being that already. In other words, every day spend a few moments seeing yourself being that effective or that, you know, having integrated these three new peak performance things you're doing, uh, because the more you do that, the more your subconscious gets involved and the subconscious runs it all anyway. So we program that through affirmations, through visualization. And I would also finally say, read inspirational things about people who've already done it. That's why I think biographies and autobiographies and, um, you know, podcasts and, and, and 
where people have gone on YouTube and talked about things, TED Talks, you know, you get all this great stuff. Right. Surround yourself in it. Make it, make it, make it the thing you're committed to. Awesome answers. Jack, I think everyone knows where to find your stuff, jackcanfield.com, but your latest book, the one that I think listeners of Bulletproof Radio would really appreciate, uh, tell me the exact title so they can look for it on Amazon right now. It's called The Success Principles, subtitle, How to Get from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be, and it's on Amazon.com, all the all the bookstores and all the um, websites that have it. All right. Thank you. My pleasure. This was fun. If you enjoyed today's episode, you know what to do. Uh, go ahead and do something to make yourself better. And one of the easiest things you could do is really read Jack's book. If you couldn't tell from this interview, <laughs> if there's anyone on earth who knows something about success, uh, not just economic success, but but being happy and grounded and of service to others and all that, like Jack stands head and shoulders above uh, almost anyone I've ever met. Uh, so there's huge value in the interview, but even more in the book. So check out the book and thanks for listening. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.